Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 18. If you're noticing, the pages towards the end are getting few and few, so we are definitely approaching the end. Um, Even, you know, some of us believe that the end is upon us and we need to be ready for it. And as as we're walking through the book of Revelation, you know, it's challenging us. You know, some of us maybe not uh, melody, note for note, exactly agree 100% on how all these events are going to go down, but we're in harmony and we appreciate that. But it's been good that it's, it's causing us to really chew through the Word of God. I've had so many people uh, on a Sunday morning or I get an email, they're saying, you know, I'm still working through that one sermon. Like I had to go back a couple times and listen to it again just to make sure you're not heretical. And I said, good. Because if you're just blindly receiving what the bald fat guy says on a Sunday, like your life is dangerous. And I'm praying for you. Like that's a dangerous way to live. But we as the church really need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. We're going to hear like they did what Paul said. But they're going to go back and search the scriptures, not search their own mind, not search Facebook pastors. They're going to search the scriptures to see if it is so. And so we absolutely can disagree. All I'm going to ask for you is search the scriptures in it because that's the words of life. That's where our foundation needs to be. And so we're chewing through it. There's a lot of difficult passages. Even last week, we talked about one of the most difficult in all of Revelation. And, and here now, we're going to talk about the fall of Babylon. I've got to read a lot of verses here. It's going to get real boring for about two, three, ten minutes because I read slow. But the Word of God is relevant to our lives. And where we could geek out and talk about all the little nuanced things of the fall of Babylon, I'm just going to warn you now, I'm going to take it in a little bit different of a direction, that we're going to talk far more applicable to our lives than really a Bible study on Revelation 18, okay? So you can't come up to me afterwards and be like, well, you didn't discuss, I told you that on the front end. I told you I was doing that. But we're going to start here in Revelation 18. So after this, John's writing, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. He called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. And as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. 
For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, pumpkin spice, no, incense. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Myrrh, frankincense, oil, wine, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses, chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas. For the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. All and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads. And as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven. O and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and he threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman, of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who had been slain on earth. Complete destruction of this city, Babylon. And the question that I get a lot, is America Babylon? No, not America. God bless America, right? That's in the Bible there, isn't there? Somewhere we find them words. Isn't, isn't the Lord blessed by everything that we're doing? Look at America. And we think and we, and we ask that question, is it Babylon? And if we take this passage figuratively, if we look at it symbolically, sure. 
living in great luxury and great sexual immorality, that people are living in luxury of, of her sexual immorality and of their sin, and people are getting rich by her. I mean, if you squint and kind of tilt your head a little bit, it looks like America, doesn't it? Is Babylon America? And if we take it literally, for me, I fully believe this is going to be a future city sitting on the river Euphrates. Because if you remember at the very beginning of 17, John is carried away in the spirit, capital S, to where? A great city? No. A desert. A desolate place where there is nothing and it will be built up. So we read 18, we just have to reverse engineer it. For there to be a great city to fall, there has to be a great city that is built up. And we know last week, Revelation 17, that Babylon, that's the fall of religious Babylon. So not only will the Antichrist Satan use this faux religious movement, his own religion, to deceive the nations, he's going to platform her on a great city. And the whole world will worship her, this city Babylon. It's going to be not this city center. I think it's going to be the world center of Antichrist kingdom. And everything about her is going to be what he is bringing about. And the world will love her. So people ask, is America Babylon? I don't think so. But Americans at the time will love her. I mean, think of everything of L.A. and Vegas and Washington, D.C. and New York and take all those great big cities and everything that they bring. And I'm saying great not just in the good things of luxury, but also the great things of depravity. And that'll give us a hint, just a little pata of what Babylon will be. I do believe it is going to be a future city on the river Euphrates that the Antichrist is going to build up. And then, you know, that's what we all do. We run back to Google and we Google about the Euphrates River and it is drying up, you know, but we all don't need to become, you know, riverologists where we're measuring the river to see when the Antichrist is coming. Like, oh, it's at 22 feet. Last week it was 26. Here we go. And then we could figure out, you know, by the the amount of that it's dropping that we could reverse into and know that on this day it'll be dried up and that means... Keep your eyes fixed on the word. But yes, it will dry up. But understand, there's a reason for it to dry up. It, that's not drying up as a sign unto us is the church. We are not waiting upon signs. We're waiting upon a savior from which we have citizenship, Philippians tells us, in heaven. That's what we're waiting upon. The river Euphrates will dry up. That's a part of the bold judgments, if you remember going back to even Revelation 16. And that's so that the forces and the allies of Antichrist can eat more easily come together. So yeah, that will happen. And, and we see that, the yes, the Euphrates River is drying up. It is lowering in its depth. Okay. My hope is in the Lord. But it is kind of exciting to look around and say, is this really it? Is this, you know, we got that, that we got everything going on with Israel. You know, a couple other nations, they throw their hat, you know, in the ring, in the running here. Could get pretty exciting. But through all of that, where should our focus be? It's on the Lord. 
Because for there to be a fall of Babylon, that means there has to imply that there had to be a great building up of this Babylon. And the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the merchants of these wares, these men of trade, just multiple industries. We already saw the religious component, but now we're seeing the economic that's going to be platformed for her. There's going to be a great building up of that. And we as humans, we have to fight against that natural inclination in us to love locations. And Calvary Chapel is not immune to it. Right? Some of us uh, OG Calvary chapels, what do we want to do? We want to go back to Pirate's Cove, and we want to get baptized there because that's where Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie did it. And if you don't get baptized there, then you're really not baptized. And I just kind of smile and nod because the Lord, I think, is saying, the same water in Missouri. I mean, it's a little dirtier probably, you know. It's not as salty as the ocean. It's the same water. It's the same baptism. But so many times we get so fixated on locations You know, we see these revivals that happen and, oh, we need to go there because that's where the Lord is pouring out his spirit. And it's like, hmm, describe to me then the doctrine of God's omniscience and his omnipresence then. If he's only in this place with revival, then, then how do we defend that that's the only place that he's at? Is he not omnipresent? with all of us? Is, is not the same Holy Spirit here with us this morning, indwelling us, being poured out upon us? Is that not the same Holy Spirit? Is the same that's being poured out in the different revivals that we see? But we love locations. And I think Satan knows that about us. And he's going to build a great location for us. And it'll deceive so many men to say, look at this great thing. Is it any wonder? When's the last time that you saw a bunch of men get together and build a great city against the design of the Lord? Go clear back to the very beginnings of Genesis with the Tower of Babel, which is where we get the term Babylon from. All through Scripture... Babylon is used figuratively, symbolically, to talk about rebellion against God. And here in the midst of the tribulation, there's going to be a literal Babylon that is built up. And we could walk through all the different sins that is going on. The idolatry, the sexual immorality mentioned here, we could could talk about it all. But what do we see in Babylon? I think you could look at it this way. Babylon is... What does man desire without any thought of God in his life or in his heart? What does man desire when there's little to no thought of God in his heart and his life? That's actually the definition of ungodliness. So we don't think about that. We think of ungodliness as like the Pablo Escobar, drug lords, murdering, thief, horribly racist, you know, that we, we go to the fullest extreme and say, that's ungodliness. And it is. Okay, I'm not saying it's not. But the definition of ungodliness is to live your everyday normal life with little or no thought of God in it. And how easily has ungodliness infected the church? where we get to the end of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we, we get to Saturday night and it's like, oh yeah, the Lord, we got an appointment tomorrow. I haven't talked to him all week. So glad we go to that little church thing and sprinkle a little Jesus on us. Say it in the worst way possible. How many of us are living lives of ungodliness every week? That hurts, doesn't it? We can't say that out loud in the church. Can you imagine that? Walking in, hey, good morning, how are you doing? Oh, just living in ungodliness, glad I'm here. 
And so we put on the mask because we don't, know what, don't want anybody to know about it. But that's what it is. That, that that little piece of our heart and our life, that's Babylon unto us. And so the question isn't for us this morning. It is not, am I living in Babylon? The question is, is Babylon living in me? That this very thing that all through Scripture has pointed to rebellion against God. And, and again, we only want to go to the extremes and say, I'm not that, so I'm not living in rebellion to God. But if we looked at our everyday normal life, living with little to no thought of God, are we not living in Babylon then? Are we not allowing Babylon to live in our heart and our mind, that we're rebelling against God, knowing that our lives were meant to be lived out for the glory of Christ, but instead we live out for the glory of self? See, what we see in Babylon is what does man desire without any thought of God in his heart and his life? And you could boil it all down to idolatry occurs when anything created to point us to Jesus. All creation was created. I know, kind of a little pun on words there. All creation was created to point us to God, to point us to Jesus. But idolatry occurs when we take that created thing to point us to Jesus and we replace Jesus with it, including ourselves. So we look at our position. Let's start there, right? A little moment of transparency. I think one of the greatest professions that people try to find their identity in, pastoral ministry. Great idolatry happens at the pulpit because men of God, well-educated, well-versed, called unto ministry, find their identity in this. And then they think, what would I be without it? And you have these guys that eventually will have to hand off their ministries, right? Because again, all of us are in ministry and all of us are, are in interim ministries. Like I will not be the pastor of Calvary Chapel forever. Thank the Lord, right? You're like, good, there's an end in sight. There's hope for us. Why? Because I have a pulse and one day it'll stop and I will die. Hopefully I get the memo before that I start losing some of my effectiveness and I just hand it off. That'd be a good place to do that and not you know, drive this thing into the cemetery. But all of us are in interim ministry. We all hand that off. And there's so many guys that they don't want to hand off their ministry, not because of effectiveness, not because God's doing a work, because my identity is in it. And who am I without it? And if we struggle with that at the pulpit, could there be a thought that all of us struggle with that? My wife asks me pretty frequently. We'll go on walks and she'll, um, you know, just, she's checking my heart. She's asking the hard questions that need to be asked. She'll say, how's your ego? Perfectly fine. Quit asking. And we just keep walking, right? <laughs> she'll ask me, how's your ego? Because I don't want to get to the end of our pastoral ministry season and you're so entangled in your role that you don't know who you are in Christ. But how many times all of us do that? We look at our jobs, our positions. We look at our families. One of the, one of the most grieving thoughts that I can have is losing a kid. And how many times have we heard, I don't know who I am without them? Or you've heard it of a spouse. I don't know who I am without my spouse. We're replacing the created thing that's supposed to point us to Jesus 
we're replacing Jesus with it. That we're putting our identity in our spouses, we're putting our identity in our role as a uh, mom or a dad, we're putting our role, our identity in our role of our jobs, we're putting our identity in our 401ks, our investments. And here's the thing, Satan could care less. He could care less what you put your identity in. He gives no flying flip what you put your identity in as long as it's not Jesus. So you want to put your identity in being the best pet owner and your dog's got everything and some of you guys are psycho about it, right? Let's just call it what it is. Some of your dogs are cared for better than I am. I'm just like, hey, can you treat me more like that person's dog? Because they got it good. Like if I believed in reincarnation, I want to be that guy's dog. He's got it nice. But we put our, he doesn't care. Put your identity in anything else, just not Jesus. And, and how crafty, how deceitful, how cunning is Satan that he'll take good things of life. And if I can just get them to put that on the throne of their hearts. Because again, he doesn't care what goes on your throne. What he cares about is who's coming off of the throne of your life. He doesn't care what you replace it with. Think of Indiana Jones, little golden statue right there. Bag of sand, bag of dog poo. He don't care. He just wants Jesus off the throne of your life. He wants Babylon to rule in you. He wants you to find fulfillment. He wants you to find purpose. He wants you to find pleasure in anything else but in the love of Jesus. And he will do anything, and he will throw anything at you to get you to do that. And that's why the scripture tells us that we need to stand guard. It's not one of those just kind of like, oh yeah, be aware, we're under attack. No, we need to stand guard. We need to be ready and looking. Like if we're only reacting to the attacks of the enemy, we're already behind schedule. We need to be proactive. We need to be self-reflective, looking at our lives and saying, all right, where in my life am I, am I becoming... Where in my life am I prone to falling because I'm putting this created thing in the place of the creator? Where am I putting too much hope? Like I'm putting a lot of hope in my position. I need to, I need to cut that out of my life. So what, am I supposed to quit my job? I'm putting too much hope in being you know, a good husband, so I need to divorce her. Is that the issue? No, don't say that. What's the, what's the, it's not an external thing. What needs to be cut out? the hardness of our heart. The cancer in our heart that is infecting us. The Babylon that we're allowing to grow in us. Again, he doesn't care. He just wants anything created that was meant to point us to Jesus, to replace Jesus and our thoughts and our desires in our lives. Because we know our hearts were created for the love of the creator. Like, that's how slimy our enemy is. He's going to take the very thing that we're created for and manipulate it. It's like, I know they were created for the creator. But I'm going to get them to misplace that desire instead of on the creator. I'm going to get them to put it on the creation. Like, how deceitful. Again, we always want to go to the full extremes, but how, how easily, how slowly and, and manipulative and very, very pointed ungodliness and idolatry will hit our hearts, hit our lives, how quickly we're living 
in Babylon because we've been kidnapped by the love for creation. We've been captured into Babylon, and, but we're not carried away, right? We're not forced into Babylon like Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah. You know, those are their Hebrew names. You would know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, we're, we're not carried away. We're not forced into it. We walk willingly into Babylon or better because we're not standing guard over the heart and our minds and our relationship with Christ, we let Babylon walk right in and sit down and pull up a seat at our table and say, hey, let's talk about where you put your hope, your purpose, your fulfillment. Where do you run to when life just hits and it's hard? Here, I got a little Babylon for you. Where do you go to celebrate when life is going great? Who do you turn to? What does that look like in your heart? Here, here's a little bit of Babylon. And we let Babylon walk right in and take a seat at our table. Jesus said it this way. He used a parable of a sower talking about four different types of soils that the sower would be throwing seed. In one of them, it was the ground that had all the thorns and the thistles and how easily we become that same soil with thorns. The seed, the word of God is choked out by the cares of this world, by the deceitfulness of riches. Because you know what the end goal is? We're unfruitful. And again, there's nothing more that the enemy wants. He doesn't want the whole church to come atheistic and deny God. He just wants them to be unfruitful. That's all he wants. Oh, we're growing. Look at these trees. Look at our leaves. We're looking good. Put a little water around. Throw some manure in here. We got a good tree looking good. Yeah, where's the fruit? And how many fruitless lives, how many fruitless churches exist in America because we allow Babylon to sit on the throne of our hearts, that we allow Babylon to be the thing that we go after. How, how many times the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke out the word of God in our life. Paul's life, Paul's ministry wasn't immune to it. You know, it's not just a, an America thing. I mean, this is Paul, just a few years removed from the resurrection. He's writing, 2 Timothy 4.10. He says, and for Demas, somebody that he was in ministry with, Right, So it'd be like me writing and saying, okay, and for Jerron. Remember him when he was on staff? Yeah. But he, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas, who was in ministry with Paul, said, you know what, Paul? I think the world has better to offer. I'm liking what Babylon has to offer, and he deserts Paul because of the love of the world around him. And Demas, for all practical purposes, it, uh, a little bit more than us, if you understand chronology, might have been a part of understanding and seeing the resurrected Jesus, or at least talking to eyewitnesses of this, and, and has the great evidence of the risen Jesus, but still looks at what Babylon has to offer, looks at Paul, says, I'm going with the world on this one, and he deserts him. How easily do we allow Babylon to walk into our heart and our life? And so how do we fight against this, right? It's like going to the doctor. They give you a good diagnosis. What's our next question? How do we treat this? Is there a medicine for it? Can we cut it out? Can we, what do we do? How do we fight against this? See, the church needs, it doesn't need another reformation, right? 
doesn't need me to write another 95 thesis and, and nail it to the door out front. You know, you try to come to church and here's this long list of where you guys are all losing your ever-loving minds. <laughs> like, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst one. Like, my list. Be like, that pastor's crazy. We don't need another reformation. What we need is a resolution. And I'm specific in my wording here for a reason. If you go back to Daniel, which, here's a little, little sidetrack. Right. So for all of you that think I know everything, praying for you, like, whew, your life is in danger. This is what I learned this week. And this has been just hitting me. And I like it. The Lord calls the church beloved, right? So take, take that away. There's only two individual people in all of Scripture that God calls beloved. Two. John is called beloved, and Daniel is called beloved. What two books is the greatest culmination of the prophecy that is to come in the end times? The book of Revelation written by John. And what should be studied with it is the book of Daniel written by Daniel. That you see a weight that these two men, so beloved unto the Lord, that they were given that prophecy. And that we should handle with care and concern that there's there is a reason that we have those books. And so many times you see a vague, ambiguous theology about end times. And it's the, let's call it what it is, it's the cop-out that we don't have to go deeper in our study of the Word of God. And we say things like, oh, it'll all just pan out. And it sounds great. I'm just, I'm just gonna trust Jesus, perfect. Then why did he give us that book? There were so many other books that he already said, just trust me in it. I mean, there's times I look at my kids and it's like, hey, do you trust me? Yeah, all right, just trust me in this. I don't want to explain it to you. But then why does he give us the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation? So that we could walk intelligently. We could walk in knowing. We wouldn't walk. These are certain things that he doesn't want us to walk just by faith. But here, let me reveal unto you what I'm doing. And he calls these two guys beloved. But Daniel all the way back to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, when he was carried away to Babylon. It wasn't like he was getting sick of living in Jerusalem. He thought, you know what? I just need new surroundings. You hear those people, they're just like, we just felt like moving. What? Like, who does that? It just felt like moving. Oh, you just stopped going through all your stuff and seeing all the crap you've accumulated, trying to move it across states. Sounded like a good idea. You know, just got sick of the surroundings. Like, if I could have never moved, it'd have been great. But here we are, and it's great, and we're loving it. But Daniel's carried away, forced into it. But Daniel 1, verse 8, he says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with, and if you could sum it up, Babylon. He resolved that in his heart. So the church doesn't need another reformation. It needs a resolution. It needs the body of Christ to be resolved. And that word resolved means to purposed in his heart. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with Babylon. He was determined. He was decided. He made up his mind. So before he walked into Babylon, he, he reasoned with himself. He decided in his own heart, I'm not going to allow Babylon around me to affect my heart inside of me. The change is not in external situations. The change is that we as the church need to be resolved not to defile ourselves with the things of this world. But how easily, 
is Babylon walking into the church. And I'm not talking about the four walls. I'm talking about our hearts. How easily do we walk in ungodliness? Because we need to be resolved. So if you see it in the other side, like how easily do we become unresolved or that we're unsettled or we're undetermined, that we're vague and ambiguous about our faith? James 1.8 would tell us very clearly, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And how many times are we unstable because we have not decided, I'm going with Jesus on this one. So there's a, there's a, uh, there's a bingo board floating its way around in the congregation. And if you want one, we could text you one. Somebody put together a bingo board because there's certain things that I say frequently, and, and that's purposeful. You know, that I want to drip these kind of statements, these thoughts in continuously. So if anybody ever stands up in the middle of service, calls for bingo, just shoot them, right? Just take them out. That's one less sinner we have to deal with. Amen? Amen. Right. So uh, and somebody showed me the bingo card after this morning, after first service. I was like, you're close. You're two away. Did you get your free spot? But one of the things I say frequently is I'm going with Jesus on this one. I'm going with the one that walked out of the grave. The evidence of the resurrection sets him apart from anybody else. And if he has commanded unto me and understanding what his death was for and what his resurrection, I'm going with the guy that walked out of the grave. Another way we could say it is, I believe that Jesus has better for my life. So why do I do these things as a follower of Jesus? Why do I not do these things, right? Because some people try to, hey, all things are lawful, pastor, Yeah, but not all things are profitable. And I'm believing that Jesus has better for me. Oh, you don't do these things? No, I don't. Why? Because I believe Jesus has better for me. Why do you do these things? Why is this what your life is about? Because I believe that Jesus has better. I've resolved that in my heart. I've made up my mind. There's been enough evidence given to me in the word, in the world, that I know Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he says he has done. And I have hope and faith and salvation in him. He has better for me. I'm going with Jesus on this. I've resolved that in my heart. So regardless of what my external life looks like, I'm going with Jesus. And how many times does Satan want to take the things of our life, the external issues, and get us to just take one small step away from the Son of God? One small step to give a little bit of a gap for what? So he could just fill it with Babylon. Put your hope in anything else but not Jesus. And so how do we, how do, we do that? First, we got to create some division between you and the Lord that small little doubt in our heart and our mind when we say, God, did you really? You know who else said that? The snake in the garden. Did God really say? That we allow the moments of unbelief and we allow moments of trust where we're gonna have doubts. You can't have faith without doubts. But allow those doubts to drive you closer to the Lord. Don't allow those doubts to pull you away from him. Be decided and resolved in your heart. Not a blind faith, not a faith without reason and evidence, but it is a faith that, I love the book that says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I mean, it takes more faith to believe that there, all of this came from nothing than all of this came from a creating God who loves us and sustains us, and he sent his son for us. 
And so I believe that Jesus has better. And God wants to do a work in us and through us. Not just as a church. I don't say it just as like Calvary, God's doing a work through us at Calvary. No, God wants to do a work through you. Regardless of what we do as the church. Right? Yeah, we're going to go to the trunk or tree. We're going to go to the fall festival. We're going to have life groups. We're going to have cow kids. God wants to do a work in you and through you that you have been given a platform, a position. You've been given a sphere of influence. The very thing that many of us fall to replacing Christ with, that very thing was given to you to glorify Christ in. Because I couldn't walk into your work. I don't have the influence with you know, your managers, your bosses, your coworkers, or the people under you. I don't have that kind of influence. They expect it from the pastor. Oh, here comes the pastor. Here you go. He's going to start preaching to us. Hold your wallet so you know pastors. Right? We laugh and we joke, but that's the burden I carry. Oh, yeah, there's a pastor just after your money. Oh, there you, you need a $34 million jet too, pastor? Yeah. I wish. Nope. I drive the Ford and I preach the word. Unless somebody has a Chevy. No. <laughs> Be like, wow, he is a poor pastor. No. They expect it from me. And I have no influence. Everybody thinks I walk around and I'm the greatest evangelist. I don't have influence. There's no red carpet when I walk through Walmart. I couldn't walk into your works and have the pointed, uh, impactful conversations that you could. And even next week, talking about the priesthood of believers, that it's not just the special few, but we all are in ministry, but we need to be resolved in our heart for it. We need to make up our minds. We need to quit being so double-minded. We need some resolution. We need to become determined. We need to believe that Jesus has better for us and that he wants to work in us and through us. But the problem is we're all too preoccupied playing Christian hokey pokey. We put our heart in, and then we take our heart out. We put our mind in, and we take our mind out. Shake it all about, turn ourselves around, do the hokey pokey, and we're still just as unfruitful from the very beginning because we are not decided and resolved to give our heart to Jesus, give our mind to Jesus, give our life to Jesus, and leave it in his hands. He has better. Quit pulling him from the throne of your heart thinking that something created could ever come close to bringing the purpose and the fulfillment that the creator would. Think about it. Ecclesiastes 3.11, 3, Ecclesiastes 3, speaking too fast. Who do you think put the hole, the God-sized hole in your heart? You think that's like a heart murmur? You think that's a heart defect? God put it in your heart. C.S. Lewis recognized it and he said, when I can find no fulfillment, satisfaction in anything in the created world, then I must reason and understand I'm created for another world. We need to be resolved and to know there's nothing in this created world that's going to bring the fulfillment, the joy, the peace that only Christ can bring. We need to quit playing the hokey pokey and leave it in his hands. 
1 Corinthians 15, I think, is one of the greatest passages to defend the resurrection of Jesus. And even with a pre-scripture creed, and we could geek out about that, that is in there that I think was written two to four years after the resurrection of Jesus. So we're talking very soon after the resurrection. After Paul gives all that evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, this is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, because of all that, that I just talked about that Jesus walked out of the grave... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. But how many times does that still little voice of our heart and our mind says, is this really going to make a difference? What impact are we really making? You really think fun-sized Snickers is going to bring somebody to the Lord? You really think caramel apples at a fall festival is going to help people find a church home? Yeah, right there. Same man, Lance. Last year, they came to the fall fest, struggling, trying to find a church home where they could grow. They had no idea. I was going to call them out. Thank you. Love you. Mean it. And then this last year, she serves at the fall fest, handing out caramel apples, hoping that people would find a church home just like they did. Our labor is not in vain. Why? Because we do it unto the Lord. We are abounding in the work of the Lord. But we need to be steadfast in that. We need to be immovable. I don't care if you're a teenager or looking, scanning the room, not a teenager. We need to be steadfast in the work of the Lord in our life. And God's doing a work in and through you. And so back to the top. What does man desire without God? Babylon. Understand the threat is real. This is not warning shots. This is live action. We are in a battle. Be resolved in his word. Be resolved in prayer. Be resolved in fellowship. Be resolved in biblical community. Be resolved in serving. Be resolved in sharing the good things that God has done in and through you. And if you're thinking, I don't even know what God has done good and in and through me. Take 21 days. Refocus your heart, a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude and see if God is not faithful to show you what he has done in your life. The things that you have missed. The impact that he has made in your life and thank the Lord for his good work in your life.